party people, and welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your place to be for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning. Sadly, Danny and Liz could not make it today, but we have a special guest. Hello, my name is Manny. So you have you have Manning and Manning. So what's the word, friend? Well, this month's book is Guards Guards, which is the eighth in the Discworld series and the first in the Guards subseries. With this, we basically have all the pieces for what Discworld will be for the next few decades. The usual question then, is this a good introduction to the series? I would say yes, for two reasons. One is that the sort of the world building behind it, it's not quite yet at a point where you need to know stuff that happened in previous books. And two, this is the start of a sub-series, so, you know, all the characters are fresh. Bit of a controversial take, but I think if you're a reader who's aware that the Discworld universe exists and has other stuff in it, you can start with pretty much any book but guards guards would be one of the better ones to start with like for example i started with the truth which was really random so yeah something we sort of started doing is rating the start ability of each book so like scale of one to ten where would you put this ten i would not go lower than eight definitely mm-hmm. we could talk about that stuff all day but let's mosey our way down trivia avenue right now Courtesy of the secret extra sister who lies dormant in a mysterious pocketed dimension as close as a thought. Published in 1989, Guards Guards is the start of the Watch subseries, which will continue through the entire course of Discworld. The book is jam-packed with references to various works of fiction. For example, the Watch House is inscribed with this dog Latin version of Make My Day Punk. It says Fabricati Diem Punk, uh, which is a reference to... Dirty Harry, the Clint Eastwood movie. Much of the discussion of noble dragons is also based on classic fantasy literature, like The Hobbit, while the care of swamp dragons is very much inspired by horse breeding and horse girl culture. Uh, There's also callbacks to previous books in the series. The Summoning of Dragons is back from The Color of Magic. The concept of getting nerd was a brief gag in sorcery. And there's even a, like, there's a mention of Magret Garlic of Weird Sister. As of 2019, this book has been published in 21 languages and has had many adaptations. BBC Radio 4 produced an audio version of the story in 1992 starring John Wood, which was also re-aired recently. In 1993, Stephen Briggs adapted it into an amateur stage play, and his script went on to book publication in 1997 and a graphic novel adaptation in 2000, illustrated by Graham Higgins. The 1995 point-and-click adventure Discworld is loosely based on this book's plot, with Rincewind as the main character. Joffrey Cush, or Jeffrey Cush, you never know with Joffrey's or Jeffrey's, he brought the story to the stage for a second time in 98, with Paul Darrow from Blake 7 as Vimes. And at DragonCon 2001, the Atlanta Radio Theatre Company presented a version by David Benedict, the recording for which is up on their website, and, with a gesture of gratitude, the ARTC made a donation to the Orangutan Foundation International. In 2011, Backspindle Games loosely adapted the story into a board game, which appears to have ended its production run, and is currently going for $230 on Amazon, so if you have a copy and you want to sell it, and make a lot of money, and you can do that. Currently in production is a new TV series based on The Watch sort of arc. Finally, on the 2003 Big Read survey, 
Guards, guards, hold spot number 69. Nice. Now that you have come with us through the 10,000 year jury that was the trivia section, let's get to the summary. We begin with a cloaked figure darting through the streets. As he makes his way to a dark doorway, we learn that he is a member of a secret society, and that Ankh Morpork is so dense with secret societies that it takes a significant chunk of the meeting to make sure that everyone is in the right place. He is swiftly revealed to be a member of the unique and supreme lodge of the elucidated brethren of the Ebon Knight. The brethren are petty, immature, and dim, all except their leader, the Supreme Grand Master who shares his plan to become the secret ruler of the city. His goal? Restore the ancient Ankh-Morpork monarchy. And to do that, he has stolen a book from the Library of Unseen University, The Summoning of Dragons. The Brethren are really interesting. Like, their main thing is about how easily manipulated they are, and compared to different sort of secret conspiracies that we get in the various watch and some of the other novels Uh, this one doesn't really seem to be very politically motivated like the supreme grandmaster what he wants is really more like this power rather than change the only sort of change that he wants is the change that puts him in charge and the followers they're not really nice people uh, he, he has this one line where he refers to them as, as useful idiots, and he's sort of preying upon their sense of entitlement rather than on an actual injustice that's been done to anyone. And it's it's fascinating. On the Brethren themselves, I'm never particularly fond of this kind of character, the childish incompetence, but they're very different from previous series villains, and I do value the variety. Yeah. I think they're set up more as pitiable figures rather than completely evil, you know, don't like them, won't engage with them. Obviously, again, they suck, but they, especially through the uh, brother fingers, like, later, basically he's like that gif of the guy who shows up with a pizza and everything's on fire. Literally that. So, while the elucidated brethren are making plans, we turn our gaze to the mountains, where King Iron Founderson, leader of the Copperhead Mine Dwarves, is having a talk with his son, Carrot, Discworld's first himbo. It's true! <laughs> it's he true! really is. He reveals that Carrot is adopted, actually a human, and was rescued as an infant from the burning wreck of a carriage, along with an old and emphatically non-magical sword. The king tells Carrot that he should go to Ankh-Morpork to live among his own kind, and a good place to start is joining the ranks of the City Watch. I like Carrot. He's very comical in this book. His lack of knowledge about the ways of the world is very much played for laugh. And I love that one line about how he's convinced that he's tall for his age, and he calls Mr. Tall for his height. Tall for his height. There we go. Tall for, the, tall for his height. And he calls Mr. Varneshi, like, one of the tall people, even though he's, like, a foot and a half taller. And also the, um, so Mr. Varneshi gives him this book of the laws and ordinances, and it's, like, from the 1500s, which 
it's not clearly defined what sort of era Guards Guards is supposed to be, but you do get the feeling that not only is this Book of Laws super outdated, Ankh-Morpork is not quite medieval, sort of vaguely set in, in fantasy times. Three things I want to bring up about Carrot. One, Carrot reminds me a lot of Tom John from Weird Sisters with the whole magical charisma angle, but he's got a lot more going for him as a character in terms of direction and a genuine arc. Two, direct from the text, he's called Carrot for his physique. So Terry Pratchett was making Dorito proportions jokes 20 years before everyone got thirsty for Chris Evans. The final least goofy thing, is it fair to say that Carrot, at least in this book, is coded as autistic? The literal mindedness, the strict adherence to rules, the inability to grasp social situations is all pretty familiar to me. I would also agree with that. That's definitely how I read him. He's very much, you could even say that like the law is his special interest. So now that we've introduced Carrot, let's do what Terry Pratchett did and shove him to the sidelines to focus on the real hero of this story. Corporal Nobby Nobs. No, it's Captain Sam Vimes, the bitter, cranky, cynical drunk who commands the Night Watch. Can I talk about the passage where he's first introduced? Please. Because I Please. really love the style of that, how it goes into his drunken stream of consciousness, talking about the city and, and how it sort of ground him down, but he loves it anyway. And he has this comparison between the city and a woman. But the way it's uh, narrated it's very sort of disjointed he's trying to remember like she kicks you in the in the in the what when the what is it called the the what is it and it's very much sounds like a like a drunk person thinking it's very much the content of a, a noir crime novel but the parody element is that vimes is such an utterly pathetic person at this point yeah i'd say so you can't really exaggerate noir enough to make it a parody. You have to bring it the other direction. Yeah, I would say that noir is inherently very silly at times. I can't find a source for this, but I remember reading that Terry Pratchett said in an interview, Guards Guards was supposed to be Carrot's story, and he just cobbled vines together out of cliches and movie quotes. But it's clear to me that once the actual story got started, Vimes turned out to be the more interesting character. Carrot is important to the story, sure, but Vimes is clearly the heart of this book, and the Watch series as a whole. The side characters are often the most interesting, yeah. like Han Solo being the archetypical example. Yeah, he's alright. I think the reason why Vimes sort of stole the show is because Terry really likes characters who are motivated by anger. Using that as sort of like the anchor of like the motivation of the character makes the character's head easier for Terry to get into. I think Carrot, he's a very reasonable and calm person. We very rarely throughout the series see Carrot get angry or raise his voice, and I don't think we see it at all in Guards Guards. And I think that's probably why Carrot got displaced, because his interiority is harder to sort of get a handle on. I think that's a fair assessment. The closest I think we see him coming to it, and I think this is a relic of the version where Carrot was the main character, is in, I think, the first letter he sends back home. He's frustrated with the state of Ankh-Morpork and of the Watch. That's, yeah, that's actually a good point. And I, I do think that Carrot also has, you know, frustration as well. Yeah. But because he's sort of less familiar with the city in the context of a lot of things, it's sort of 
it was sort of harder for Terry to bite into that. Carrot joins the Night Watch and is amazingly good at policing, to the surprise of Captain Vimes and the other two Watchmen, Sergeant Fred Cullen and Corporal Nobby Nobbs. Emboldened by his prowess, the four officers wander into a bad part of town. Just as they are being menaced by a gang of ruffians, the elucidated brethren summon a dragon, and it burninates the ne'er-do-wells into ash. This attracts special interest from the librarian, who has been following the watch. A quick question. What's the difference between fanservice and pandering? Hmm. I would say that fanservice is pandering, but specifically towards people who are already fans, and then pandering is more sort of trying to catch an audience. My answer is, pandering is fan service that I don't like. Fair enough. <laughs> I, in that case, meaning, like, just the speaker. Much as I love the character of the librarian, he's not super necessary to this plot. The stuff he does could pretty easily have been filled in by just other characters or just left out entirely. Like, I think he's mostly in because he's basically the mascot of Discworld. So, the librarian returns to Unseen University and discovers that the dragon summoning book has been stolen. Meanwhile, in defiance of orders from Patrician Vetinari, Captain Vimes begins investigating the dragon. To do so, he makes his way to the manor of Sybil Ramkin, dragon breeder extraordinaire and wealthiest woman in the city. I really like her. It's hard to remember what my first impression of her was the first time I read Guards Guards. I thought it was cool that she was you know, such a specialist on dragons. She was the go-to source and, you know, important to the plot and she has this knowledge that she can bring to things. I don't really like the way a lot of characters talk about her, where they sort of, like, there's one part where Nobby, and Nobby later sort of gets nicer to her, but when they're talking about her, they're like, oh yeah, she's this big crazy woman and now that I know her, you know, I don't feel like that assessment's you know, she's not crazy, but... One thing I like to mention is that, like, she is unambiguously, like, plus-sized lady. Like, that's... Yeah, she's both made explicitly very clear tall and very text. fat. And Terry doesn't portray that as a negative thing. He's he sort of yeah. just like, yeah, she's big. She's she's in charge. Um, some of the characters have sort of snide comments, which is unpleasant, but the narration itself is just, like, neutral yeah. to positive. Like, she is always in command of the environment. Her command voice, it's something that comes up a couple different times in the novel, but when she talks, people feel inclined to obey. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting to parallel that to sort of Carrot's uh, command mm. voice, because in this book, in this yeah, book, uh, he also has a bit where he's talking... Uh, to, yeah, the dwarfs, where he sort of goes in and, and uh, speaks in dwarfish to them and says, you know, wouldn't your, your mothers be sad to see you here? And they they are moved to tears. Like, his dialogue in that is, like, direct, uh, what's all this then, but in dwarfish? Yeah, yeah. Her being a horse girl, but for dragons. She is basically a horse girl, but is, for dragons. She, literally, because the swamp dragons are based so heavily on horse breeding stuff, and, like, how actual real-world horses get all sorts of diseases. God, I was reading about horse diuretics. Do you have to share? <laughs> no, but um, apparently they give that to them before races because if they have too much fluid in their body while they're running very fast, their lungs bleed. 
Oh, good. (laughs) Very badly designed creatures. Well, we're actually right about to get into that. Lady Ramkin's swamp dragons are tiny things prone to all sorts of diseases when they're not just exploding. Swamp dragons were mentioned in The Color of Magic, but this is the first book that actually shows them off. The dragon that the elucidated brethren summon, which Lady Ramkin calls a noble dragon, is exactly what we tend to imagine for a dragon in a western-inspired fantasy story. Massive, greedy, dangerously intelligent. With the swamp dragons, Terry Pratchett emphasizes the gross, frail, and animalian. To me, they embody an important theme of this book and of Discworld as a whole, specifically the difference between stories and reality. We can talk about the point he's making a little later. As if on cue, the summoned dragon appears again flying over the city and burning various properties. The next day, the streets are packed with people calling out for the dragon to be slain. The patrician has put up a reward, and various professional heroes have come for it. Here is where we meet the merchant cut-me-own-throat Dibbler. Dibbler's a great comic relief character because just like the food he sells is so nasty and it's such primal, like, gross-out humor. Basically, he's trying to run a business and... It's not going well, obviously, because the food he sells is disgusting, but he sort of never gives up. And that's a little bit endearing about him, even though he is just a very sort of looking out for himself first sort of guy. It's also a little bit uh, humanizing to see him always striving. Personally, Dibbler is not my favorite character, but he's useful as a way to show an aspect of Ankhmar Park that Pratchett more often tells us about. That being the opportunistic and mercantile nature of its citizens. So in a way, Dibbler is kind of the soul of the city. I think so, too. He reminds me a lot of the river. <laughs> so the reward that the British offers is like 50,000 Ankhmar Park dollars. And yeah. there's this really funny bit where it's almost like a little like Python-esque sketch, right? Where the different sort of professional heroes are talking about it. And they're like, ah, he's not offering enough. Like, this is ridiculous. This is not the going right. Like, oh, Monster Hunt in these days is really rough. And there's a there's like that one Beowulf reference where he's like, yeah, I cut a monster's arm off. And then its mum came up to me and started yelling at me. Like, I don't know. I really like that joke because... I just love seeing how Terry draws on different round world things and reintroduces them in different settings and, and sort of changes the tone of them a lot. And also, I like the dumb joke about how, like, well, he doesn't have a daughter, but he has a, a dog. And then the one person's like, what kind of dog? <laughs> like, yeah. What kind of dog was he going to say yes to? Best not to speculate, I think. Mm. So... Loaded up with gear from Dibbler and other suppliers, the citizens of Ankhmor Park crowd the rooftops that night, keeping their eyes peeled for the dragon. It appears, shrugs off the assault, and destroys the watchhouse. Captain Vimes wakes up in Ramkin Manor, where Lady Sybil provides him with a hot meal and the watch with a new building in Pseudopolis Yard. Before he leaves, a mob marches on the manor, determined to kill Lady Sybil's dragons. Captain Vimes defends her by threatening the mob with one of the dragons in another extended Dirty Harry reference. This scene does demonstrate that he was like actually listening to Lady Sybil when she was going through her whole rant earlier about dragons. And like, yeah, they they uh, instantly established this rapport, even even though he it feels like he's a little bit intimidated by her. He's explicitly intimidated by her. She's an intimidating woman. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention. An officer of the law threatening citizens with a weapon is a bad scene at the best of times, but it's especially not great for 2019. It has not aged well and perhaps was not even fresh at that age. Man, remember when we thought police existed to protect us? 
Those were the days. <laughs> there are some moments in the Watch series where you're like, okay, um, are we supposed to be on the same side as that? In return for Vimes' bravery, Lady Sybil provides the Watch with one of her own dragons, whom they name Errol. They also deputize the librarian, who has been adamant about his missing book. Together, they search the city. It seems fruitless until they return to the new watch house, where the dragon is waiting for them. Amazingly, it does not roast them alive, but instead flies off to the city plaza, where it confronts a young man who claims to be the rightful king. They square off, and smash cut to the celebration of the dragon's defeat and the king's imminent coronation. Most of Ankh-Morpork eagerly accept their new ruler, but Captain Vimes is troubled. First, he is not happy to have a monarchy and its inherent caste system. And second, he's suspicious of how easily the dragon was defeated, a fear shared by the librarian, who decides to investigate further by taking a journey into L-space. It's quantum! It's don't worry about it. This was actually established in a footnote early in the story, but... The basic way it works is knowledge distorts space-time, so all libraries everywhere are connected, including the same library can be connected to itself in the past, so he time-travels through library. It was neat. The story could have been written in a way that the tangent wasn't part of it. Although the yeah. li- librarian is convenient to have around for some things, like, he's basically there because it's very cool that there's an orangutan librarian, which... Yeah, I it respect, is. but it also it also kind of shows. I would have preferred just a whole book about the concept of L space. Hmm. Like that seems like fertile ground, and I don't recall offhand if it like meaningfully comes up in any other books. I'm sure we'll get comments. Meanwhile, Errol is eating his way through basically everything in the watch headquarters, including an entire iron kettle. Captain Vimes takes his investigation to the plaza drawing out a chalk outline of where the dragon had been, quote-unquote, slain. He believes that nothing is as simple as it seems, and he's quickly proven right. The dragon, angered by its dismissal, wills itself back to reality before Vimes' very eyes. In short order, it incinerates the meeting house of the elucidated brethren, and Vimes witnesses one of its members run away towards the palace. I feel like when Brother Fingers comes back with the pizzas, it's exactly like that one scene in Community, where the guy comes back with a big stack of pizzas and everything's on fire, especially for the very good reason that everything's on fire, and his pizzas. So, there is a parade held to celebrate the new king. Captain Vimes incites a panic when he sees a pair of wings that turn out to be a raven. Lupine wants, secretary, formerly to the patrician and now to the king, fires Vimes, so that we can have the classic turn-in-your-badge scene from every cop movie ever. The dragon crashes the coronation, immolates the new king, and takes the crown for itself. So now, Ankh-Morpork has a dragon king. Kind of a big twist, huh? The first time I read it, I was completely floored. I was like, the dragon's king now? What? The leaders of Ankh-Morpork's various guilds and institutions have a lunch meeting at the palace where Lupine once explains the new state of the state. This meeting is fascinating because it's absolutely, obviously, a very terrifying situation. It's extremely tense. Once is, he's in hell, basically. He's being commanded by the dragon. He says they don't have to, but obviously the subtext is, yes, you have to. He makes them sort of give tribute of 
of their different jewelry and different fancy items they have on them to the dragon and then he brings up that like yeah then the, the king is gonna want to eat maidens and then there's this passage that absolutely gets me every time the silence purred at them as once talked they avoided one another's faces for fear of what they might see mirrored there each man thought one of the others is bound to say something soon some protest and then i'll murmur agreement not actually say anything i'm not as stupid as that, but definitely murmur very firmly, so the others will be in no doubt that I thoroughly disapprove, because at a time like this it behooves all decent men to nearly stand up and almost be heard. But no one said anything. The cowards, each man thought. And that's fascinating to me, because it talks about how when there's very bad things going on socially, the people Luckily, we are not in a current it. situation like that at all. <laughs> we're we're just short of that. We're just what a good thing that our current government is totally great at everything. <clears throat> Once gets them to agree to the maiden thing by saying that basically, oh, it'll be from other people's families. It won't be your family. And so they agree to this oppressive system because they're not the ones targeted by it since they are exempt they do not resist it. Any sort of rise of authoritarianism is very much facilitated by the people who fail to say no. Indeed, almost as easily as they accepted the king, the people of Ankh-Morpork begin to accept the dragon. Vimes confronts Lupine Wants in the palace, revealing that Wants is in fact the supreme grand master of the elucidated brethren. But Vimes can't bring himself to take matters into his own hands, so Wants has Vimes thrown into the dungeon, with the deposed veterinary. Can we talk about once? I've been dying to talk about once. Um, <laughs> once is not politically motivated. Once isn't trying to change the order of the city. He's just trying to put himself in charge. And there's a passage when Once is first introduced about how Vimes remembers him from his childhood, how he sort of used to be the second in command to various different sort of boy gangs on the streets of the Shades. And how he, basically, he liked to wield backseat power. And Wants doesn't like the ruling style of the current patrician. Uh, because Vedinari is not, he's not like, you know, one of the leaders of the boy gangs uh, that he grew up with. There's the passage at the beginning about how he doesn't call himself a dictator. How he'll tolerate anything except for something that mimes. promotes the harm of the city. And mimes, yeah. <laughs> and he's sort of a, sort of a... Vetinari's a Bond villain. A little bit, but he, he's, he's more of, of, of a behind-the-scenes manipulator of events, and that doesn't leave enough room for Wants to sort of do his backseat power thing. So Wants is sort of like, okay, well, I'm going to set up a system where I can wield more backseat power. I'll get rid of this bozo and, and, and put my drunk younger cousin in charge. But then drunk younger cousin gets dragoned. For as much as he rags on the other elucidated brethren, he's every bit as petty and small-minded as they are, just on a different scale. Fundamentally, he just wants power to lash out at a world that has hurt him. He survives thanks to his intelligence, which has become the metric by which he defines himself, and when that intelligence is challenged, he starts to unravel. He's gotten to the, the peak of where he can go, and he wants to depose Vetinari because Vetinari is smarter than he is. Yeah, and he, he runs into that same problem with the dragon, with the 
added difficulty that now this thing is sort of, oh, and God, it's so creepy how it's sort of partly in his mind and like possessing him a little bit and sort of forcing him to do and say certain things. It's dark. <laughs> it's grim. I don't think the dragon is like puppeteering wants to do anything. I think the dragon is threatening wants with like, do as I say or else. The sense I have is that like a dragon can access his mind. They sort of form depending on what your mind is like. Yeah, messed up. Also, this scene is where the dragon makes a point that dragons do bad things to people, but that's expected of dragons. When humans do bad things to other humans, that's like a moral failing. Yes, because humans try to justify it and dragons don't. And the dragon, like the dragon's watching the lunch meeting unfold and shocked and disgusted at, at how easily the humans accept the arrangement where the dragon's just going to eat a person and that's fine. Yeah, the way the dragon reacts to that is like, hey, you humans suck. Speaking of eating people, the palace guard select Lady Sybil for the main course. Vimes, with help from the librarian, breaks out of the dungeon and runs to her rescue. The rest of the Night Watch mount a last-ditch effort to strike down the dragon, banking on the narrative power of last-ditch million-to-one chances, but their effort ultimately falls victim to statistics. It's so funny. The million and one chance comes through nine yeah. times out of ten. It's yeah. a good. It's a good joke. It's a good joke. It's set up when Colin is shooting at it. It's set up that you think he's going to make it. He's going to hit the dragon and it's vulnerable, right? He fires his first shot and it goes terribly, which is, you know, it's it's funny because it's sort of set up that you think it's going to happen, but it's also like, uh oh, dragon's still out there. Vimes arrives to rescue Lady Sybil and nearly frees her in time, but the dragon arrives before they can get away. Then, who should appear but Errol, having guzzled enough fuel to ignite a flame out of his, I'm just gonna say it, cloaca, and literally rocket into the sky to challenge the dragon. They fight for a time, the dragon incapable of hitting Errol with its flame, and Errol unable to so much as scratch its scales until the little swamp dragon hits the noble one with the full force of a supersonic boom and knocks it out. With the dragon subdued, Vimes is all but ready to let the Ankh-Morpork mob finish it off. But wouldn't you know it, Carrot has arrested the dragon. Despite his better judgment, Vimes starts giving orders for the dragon to get due process. But then Errol returns and starts protecting the noble dragon. Turns out their battle was not a fight over territory, but a courtship ritual. A full ten years before Shrek, Terry Pratchett comes out with the female dragon surprise. Yes. Which is also the name of a cocktail I'm working on. Ah, delicious. Yeah. So, I think Errol is Vimes a little bit. Pretty explicitly, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Vimes is a little Errol, and he's sort of this scrappy dragon that Sybil sort of wasn't she wasn't going to keep him for breeding because he was just not a really great dragon and then Errol comes through and saves the day and the first time I read Guards Guards I felt like the Errol thing was a bit of a deus ex machina because it sort of tied up the huge dragon problem very quickly and very conveniently but upon a couple rereads it's you know it's very much thematically appropriate. I absolutely 
love that one line when Sybil and Vimes are talking about Errol having run off with the big dragon and, and how is the big dragon going to survive if it doesn't have any, you know, any more magic to feed off of. And then Sybil has this, it's so tender, this very sweet little line where she's like, well, most people manage to get along after the magic ends. And it's... It's so good. Obviously, Sybil, her parallel with the big dragon is a lot more fraught, obviously, because she's wonderful and lovely and the big dragon is, you know... Kind of evil, but the the whole, like, Vimes is the scrappy little arrow dragon, and Sybil is sort of like the big, noble, strong dragon that people listen to. It's very sweet that those two sort of pairings at the end mirror each other. Like, what exact moment do you think Sybil decided that she was going to have a Vimes snap? (laughs) I think when she's like, Captain is a very dashing title. Perhaps then. Definitely by the end of the scene where he threatens a mob with one of her dragons. Okay, I'm going to change my answer to yours because that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot better. So, Errol and the noble dragon fly off together, but there's still one loose end to, to tie up. Lupine once begins making plans to re-establish his authority, but Vetinari has freed himself from the dungeon and is waiting for him around every corner. The watch show up to arrest once, and Vimes tells Carrot to throw the book at him, which Carrot does, knocking once through a hole in the other wall and letting him fall to his death. Yes. Basically, once has to be defeated, but you cannot have Vimes kill him. Or, and you can't have Carrot kill him on purpose. You can't have him murdered because, I know, Carrot, he represents lawfulness. He's very into order, stability. You know, he's very by the book, book ironically being what uh, kills once. And Vimes, he's also very motivated by, you know, his sense of what's lawful and and what's right. And so Vimes is very much, he has this internal opposition where he has instincts that tell him to do a certain thing, but he's like, no, I have to yield to the law. So to defeat once, you couldn't have had uh, Vimes kill him because he's a policeman. He's not supposed to do that. You know, that's murder. (laughs) Terry sort of gets himself into like a little bit of a corner where he's he's taken a police story and a hero story and he sort of makes them together but you st- you cannot have someone defeat once in the quote unquote heroic way but at the same time like due process would not work for once because Vetinari would just let him back out Vetinari like was saying as much in that scene exactly and that's basically the resolution of this sort of quote-unquote problem, hinges on a pun, which is very, very Terry. Vetinari dismisses the rest of the watch and has a chat with Vimes about the nature of humanity. That it's not good people and bad people. The world is all bad people, some more proactive than others. Ooh, everyone's depressed, babe. Let's get you some fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I do have to talk about Vimes and his worldview sort of compared to Vetinari's worldview. Because Vimes is quite cynical, but he's not quite this cynical. When everyone's sort of becoming monarchists all of a sudden, Vimes is very irritated and he's like, why are people like this? And so Vimes isn't someone who has, you know, the best view of humanity, but he hears this speech and he doesn't agree with it. He's like, okay, then if this is what you honestly believe, then how do you get out of bed every morning? I feel like that makes Vimes think about his own you know, position on human nature. He's not very optimistic about it, but he hears this and he's like, well, that's not quite right either. 
Oh, I want to bring up a review by author and critic John Clute, who faulted Vetinari's monologue as sort of bringing down the mood of the book. I actually disagree, partially because the petty nastiness of ordinary people is a motif of the whole story, but also because this entire speech I view is just set up to the punchline that is the next scene. So the Watch are hailed as heroes for defeating the dragon, and they are asked to name their reward, and what do they ask for? Why, a $5 a month raise, a replacement tea kettle, and a dartboard. That's it. That's all. The whole city is poised for them to to make huge demands when they ask for this small, humble request. It's an amazing moment. The whole thing Vetinari was saying is that people are their own dragons, that we are going to like try and take and take as much as we can. And the watch asking for so little proves that no, people are perfectly willing to just do the right thing. So with that, the guards return to Sidopolis Yard. All but Vimes, who has been invited back to Ramkin Manor for a menage deux. As he and Lady Sybil have a romantic dinner, Carrot talks with the other guards about how being a king probably isn't all it's cracked up to be. Like, just because somebody has a mysterious past like he does, or an ancient sword like he does, or even a crown-shaped birthmark like he does, that doesn't give them the right to rule. Such a funny sure. scene. If it wasn't if it wasn't clear enough that Carrot was the legitimate heir to the throne of Ankh before, it is clear now. Uh, Nobby and Cole and are sort of like, oh, that's weird. Oh, yeah. and Carrot's just, Carrot's not aware there's a second layer to this conversation. And as the camera pans back from the Discworld, and we see in the faint distance Errol and the Noble Dragon flying out into space, we close another book of the series. Salvo's Guards, Guards. Some stuff to talk about. Errol farting a jet engine is, <laughs> like, it's puerile, it's preposterous, it's Discworld. Yeah. Tabor does not make fart jokes. He makes fart jokes. God, yeah. He's Errol just like, scooting around just through the air with his nasty rancid dragon farts. Good for him. <laughs> this book is the book that sort of shows the flaws in the Ankh-Marquark guild system because mm -hmm. Vetinari did not have a plan for dealing with the dragon. He was just hanging out in the dungeon with some rats. Not for the not for the whole book, but for the whole sort of duration of the of the crisis, and it sort of reads as though the patrician was counting on perhaps the guilds to resolve the problem, but they did not. They failed, and sort of this is the book where he realizes what he has done institutionally to make the watch not a powerful force in the city was a mistake, and this is the where the watch gets revitalized. To me. This book is fundamentally about the concept of duty, D-U-T-Y, and the need to do the right thing even when it's messy and gross and thankless, because it has to be done. I think also there's that thematic connection of stories and reality that's, that still ties into that thing, because the heroes are supposed to be the ones who do like, the dragon slaying, and, and instead it's done by... The Watch, who at this point are treated basically like janitors. Yeah, and I think we had talked about about them being sort of like whittles, and then the whittles save the day. Yes, and that's uh, specifically why I think Errol is so important to this story, is because the Swamp Dragons 
embody, for lack of a better term, the worst elements of just being real. But it is through taking responsibility for and taking care of and demonstrating love to Errol that they ultimately succeed. In direct contrast to Wants, who wanted to take the whittles and leverage them into a blunt instrument. And like, I always love thematic mirroring. It is my jam. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I have a long-standing thing that Poison Ivy should not be a Batman villain. She should be a Wonder Woman villain. Speaking of uh, parallels and, mm-hmm. and, and mirrors, um, not so much a parallel or a mirror as a fantastic callback <laughs> that calls back to, again, that one passage I talked about at the beginning. At the end, we're with Sybil, right? The woman yeah. was a city. A fantastic pair of bookends there. But it's basically like, like the Agmarpark is, I guess, the one of the big loves of Vimes' life, even though he sort of has a fraught relationship with it because it's it sucks in many ways um and his relationship with hank marpark and his relationship with sybil are different they're kind of the opposite right and that sybil's sort of uplifting him and and making him you believe in himself that one scene where she goes to the watch and everyone feels tremendously bucked up but at the beginning he sort of feels like he's been ground down by the city but he's still you know he still has that attachment to it and loves it and i don't know i think it's kind of really beautiful that that those lines tie together so well. I just want to take this opportunity to plug, it'll be just a minute, we are on YouTube, under just my personal YouTube account. Yes, every everything I'm about to say will be linked in all of the descriptions. We have a Twitter, Weird Sisters Pod, Tumblr, Weird Sisters Podcast, and a Discord server, where you will be able to chat with other Discworld fans. And we're not doing the thing that a lot of other podcasts and stuff do where it's like exclusive to patrons or whatever. You do not need to give us money. We're always happy to have people interested in talking about Discworld because we want to, too. That's why I started this podcast. So we have to do the casting call. Ah, the casting call. Yes. Yes. So, you know, when I was filling out my response, I (laughs) my submissions Mm -hmm. are absolutely, you know, like, for example, (laughs) I had Danny DeVito. I had Danny DeVito. Uh, on stilts as Sergeant Colon, and Danny DeVito without stilts wearing prosthetic nose as Nobby Nobs. Obviously, I I don't know actors. So um, I think actually, all right, so suggestions for Carrot were Tom Holland of Spider-Man fame and Taylor Lautner, who I think was in uh, the Twilight movies. Yeah, he was Jacob. I'm going to say Tom Holland is too skinny for the role. I think Carrot is a little bit of a giant, and I don't think Tom Holland can bring giantness to the table. And uh, Taylor Lautner, I don't exactly remember what he looks like. By virtue of not being Tom Holland, I would say he gets the part. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, shout out to the person who put in the response, no idea, sorry, whom I loved in Les Miserables. (laughs) 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 That joke was not as good as your reaction suggests. Don't encourage me. Okay. How so? How about your pick for Sam Vimes? I've just I've just had to Google uh, these. Okay. Funnily enough, the ones that I had to Google, I think, are the are the better two. I would say no to Nick Cage because I cannot take him seriously. I'm Hugh Laurie. I I know that whoever submitted this was probably thinking of like Hugh Laurie from House, yeah. but I'm thinking of Hugh Laurie from Jeeves and Worcester, so it's just not clicking. Yeah. 
Patty Considine, he looks about right, if you can get him to look a little scruffier. And then I quite like Wood Harris. I think he'd make a good find. So let's go with Wood Harris. How about Lord Vetinari? Ah, now I think Lawrence Fishburne. I haven't seen him in anything, so I haven't seen his acting. You haven't seen The Matrix? Oh, I have seen The Matrix. Oh, that's what he's in. Okay, because the picture that's coming up is him, current day him, but this picture of him younger. Yeah, okay. So now I know who Lawrence Fishburne is. Now I'm seeing his little uh, mustache and little chin beard. And I've just Googled Jared Harris. He looks he looks a lot like Charles Dance. If I had to pick out Charles Dance or Jared Harris in a lineup in which the other person was there, I wouldn't be able to. Uh, and then there's also Keanu Reeves. I, I believe that Keanu could do it. But like, is Keanu the best person for the role from this list? I mean, Charles Dance, he did a great job in Going Postal. He was, you know... He had he brought delightful energy to the role, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with let's just have an actual horse in to play this slightly equine man. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, playing the role of Lord Vetinari, Mister Ed. Yes. What about Lupine Wants? So we have <laughs> Dad from Beetlejuice <laughs> of the New England from Beetlejuices. <laughs> yes, his name is. Jeffrey Jones, there we go. He, on Terry Pratchett's, on one of the online forums that he used to be active on, he suggested that once as possible casting for Veterinari. Really? Yeah, but I think he'd make a better once. Mm, the other suggestions are Mark Gatiss and Elijah Wood. I can't quite see Elijah Wood as mm. the Weasley secretary. All right. So do you have a specific pick? I do not. I do not, and that's why I don't work in casting. Another horse to play Lupine wants. Oh, no, we'll get an actual weasel. Perfect. Sergeant Colin. Um, I'm going to Google Mark Addy. Yes! Oh, my God, he's perfect. It's Mark Addy. It's Mark Addy. I've just Googled him. He's the only one. Yeah, that tracks. What about Corporal Nobbs? I could buy Seth Green as Corporal Nobbs. Finally, Lady Sybil Ramkin. All right, so we have two separate submissions for Olivia Coleman. So that's the audience pick. You know who'd be fantastic? Young Stephanie Cole of Cabin Pressure fame. She could do the Sybil voice, I say, really well. And our other suggestion is Queen Latifah, who is also a beautiful big woman. Uh, I would say that these are all pretty good Sybils, the ones that have been suggested. And I think, uh, I don't think I can pick. What's your take? Queen Latifah. Oh, I don't know. Um, all of them. They're all they're all great. They'll just take turns. <laughs> Till the camera will pan out, it'll pan back, and it'll be a different actress, and it'll be fine. We are almost at the end, which means it's time for the favorite footnote. The three rules of the librarians of space and time are 1. Silence. 2. Books must be returned no later than the date shown. And 3. Do not interfere with the nature of causality. Solid rules for us all. I hope you'll take them with you as you go on from this episode. Before we head out, I want to thank Willow Carter for our theme music. You, Manny, for coming on as a guest. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank you, the listener. Check your local library for the next book in the series, Eric. Until then, the turtle, the turtle moves. moves.